Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One mistake that people think is like, oh, okay, if I just could be really rational and logical, then I could talk my way out of this. And and in fact, that's what many doctors try to do or friends is they say, your last, you know, 20 years of physicals have been great. What are you worrying about? Stop worrying. Or your friend says, oh, stop worrying. You know, the last 500 times you thought it was cancer, you know, you're fine. And This isn't about logic. It's about knowing how to respond to an intense fear signal that's accidental. That was Dr. Karen Lynn Cassidy on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced 
trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors, and we'll hope to see you there. Hi, everyone. This is Debbie. Today, we have an episode for you on health anxiety with Dr. Karen Lynn Cassidy, who is an anxiety expert and who has a new book out on health anxiety. And I'm here today with Yael to talk about what's ahead in the episode. Yeah. The discussion of health anxiety is so timely because I think health anxiety is like, you can almost like see it in the air these days. But as a mental health practitioner, health anxiety has always been something that I've struggled with treating. And I thought that this was a great conversation because she talked about sort of the ways that we can understand, like, when is health anxiety helpful and when is it really becoming problematic? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something I was struggling with in my own mind when I was thinking about talking with her because it's like, who doesn't have at least a little bit of health anxiety? I mean, maybe there's a few rare birds out there that just never worry about their health, never, you know, doom scroll about every symptom. But I think most of us probably do some of that. And in the pandemic era, you know, it's like, I just read about the new variant that sore throat is the main thing. And so now I'm like, is my throat sore? I can't tell. And I'm just like overly attuned to it. I can't tell if I'm thirsty or if it's a sore throat, but it's like, that's kind of normal, right? I mean. Yeah. I think it's so normal. And like when somebody that you're close to has an illness and has some symptoms that are common, you start noticing those things in yourself. And the more you notice them, the more dominant they become in your awareness. In your conversation with Karen, she was talking about how it's often the case that people with health anxiety will pursue like lots of testing from lots of different sources to look for a final answer of, is something wrong or am I okay? And most often the answer is it's unclear because the human body is so complicated and and I don't think that there is science that will ever show us, you know, conclusively like, will you live or will you die, you know, with all the many systems that are in play and like the in- interaction with the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so often the advice from medical practitioners is like, watch and wait, but it's advice that most people are really uncomfortable taking because it feels like you should take action. And this actually kind of reminds me of my episode with Lighty Klotz about subtract is like when there's uncertainty and when it comes to our health, there's so much uncertainty again, because we can't predict like what's going to happen in our body, when we'll die, what, what health events will come down the road or in our own bodies or in the bodies of people we love. And so the automatic impulse in the place of uncertainty is like, do something, like make it more certain, even if the certain thing is painful and uncomfortable, like more testing, more surgery, more medication, we'd rather do something than not do something. And and I actually wrote about this in a piece with Barry Schwartz right at the beginning of the pandemic, this idea of as humans, we don't like uncertainty. And so Barry Schwartz wrote a book called Practical Wisdom, where he talks about using practical wisdom to navigate uncertainty. But the point is that we'll, as humans, do almost anything to avoid uncertainty, but the, but we can't. And so again, like those actions actually make the the life that we're living less rich, more uncomfortable, um, less in line with the kinds of lives that we'd ideally like to be living because we're trying so hard to work against a reality that we can't make more certain. It is hard to wait or to not know or to just be sitting with that. Yeah, we're not quite sure why you have that particular thing going on. Or I mean, I even remember when I was pregnant, especially the first time, because you're so, you know, it's so scary and new, but and and just waiting for for test results and waiting for, you know, oh, you have to get it to a certain number of weeks to get your next ultrasound and just feeling you know, I'd be a little bit preoccupied by, is everything okay in there? I don't really know what's going on. Is this going to work out or not work out? And it's a scary feeling. And so you might start doing all these things, whether it's like web searches online or just attuning to every symptom or getting extra tests when you can. And it does feel like somehow that's going to take away the anxiety. Um, But it really, it doesn't really. And, you know, if we could just peacefully wait four weeks for our next test or for the result to come through, that would probably sometimes be the best course of action, but it's really hard to tolerate that waiting period. Totally. And somebody might, uh, and people have argued, like, 
why not get the test? Because at least it'll give you some piece of information and maybe that piece of information will be actionable. And maybe the action that you take will save the pregnancy or save your life or save the life of your child. And I think that's always a possibility. And that's why we feel so motivated to take action instead of not taking action. And to me, I think the important thing to assess with, again, with eyes open is, is to recognize that there's always opportunity costs. This idea that there's never too much that we could do for our own health or the health of our child, I believe is incorrect. I think when we do too much, it has an important cost. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't. It just means that isn't the only answer. And that considering the value of doing more versus the value of doing less can be an important piece of reflection that you do when it comes to medical care. You know, we were just talking about this offline in terms of aging and how it's like, on the one hand, it's really important to take care of yourself as you, you know, go through life and to do, (laughs) do things to maintain your health if that's important to you, but that it can be a slippery slope into like becoming almost an obsession. And actually, Karen talks in the episode about orthorexia or getting perfectionistic about health behaviors and how, you know, is that really what you want? your whole life to be about spending all your time and money on not aging or aging, slowing down the aging process, even though we know it's like you're aging anyway. It's just, it's such an interesting middle ground. I think it's, it's probably an elusive middle ground, but that piece around like, are you, you know, is this the life you want to be living? Constant test results, constant health behaviors, maybe for some people, but I think for a lot of us, it's like, there's other parts of life too, that we want to be, prioritizing. And that can be interfering at times. Totally. And Karen, at one point, pointed out that, you know, at some core level, it's really about an existential anxiety. If we don't know when we're going to die, and we also don't know when our our child, for example, is going to die. And if our child has had, you know, some health event and we get anxious about it, it can feel as a parent, like the only thing that one should do is monitor and be careful and get it checked out and get it checked out again. Because at the end of the day, isn't our job as parents to make sure our child, our children are alive. And, and yet what we're trying to do, and Karen points this out, is make certain that our child isn't going to die, which we cannot do. That is an impossibility. And so recognizing that and bringing it into our awareness that this is really an existential anxiety that we can't control no matter what we do and that those actions of attempting to control outcome are actually interfering in a meaningful, rich life is is kind of helpful because then we can sort of make a more open-eyed choice about how we handle that existential anxiety. Right. And that's what I loved about this conversation. It's having the anxiety itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's like, is it driving unhelpful behaviors, either for yourself or in parenting? Yeah. It gets even more dicey when you have somebody coming in and they say, I'm really concerned, but I actually think the anxiety, uh, the worry about my health is driving helpful uh, seeking of intervention or, or testing. And she gives a lot of suggestions for how to explore that with somebody who's not explicitly stating that the anxiety is a problem. And I, th- I found those suggestions really and exercises really helpful. Yeah. And she gives some strategies too, I think, for those who do identify with this issue and recognize that it's a problem in terms of some exposure-based therapies and just some different ways to think about it that I think people will find helpful if this is something that either you struggle with yourself or if you know someone who who's struggling with health anxiety. Dr. Karen Lynn Cassidy is the owner and clinical director of the Anxiety Treatment Center of Greater Chicago, the Upper Midwest's longest-running exposure-based treatment center for anxiety disorders. She has served as president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America and chair of the Scientific Advisory Board of Beyond OCD. She has published numerous articles and scientific publications that advance the understanding of anxiety disorders. She's also a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Clinical Psychology at Rosalind Franklin University of Medical Sciences. She's won several awards, including the prestigious Clinician of Distinction Award from the ADAA, 
is an ADAA founding fellow, certified trainer of the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. Her previous book is The No Worries Guide to Helping Your Anxious Child. And today we're going to be talking about her new book, Freedom from Health Anxiety, Understand and Overcome Obsessive Worry About Your Health or Someone Else's and Find Peace of Mind. Karen, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Debbie, thank you for inviting me. I'm just really tickled to be here. Well, we are delighted too. Um, I have noticed a lot of health anxiety around. Um, I don't know if I'm just paying more attention to it or if it has something to do with the pandemic that we've been through the last few years, but I think that this is something that a lot of people have been experiencing. What are your thoughts on that? Are you Do you think that this is on the rise currently or is this has it always been there and I just wasn't paying attention to it before? Well, I think both answers are correct. So I think one thing that has happened with the pandemic is that the public in general is much more conscious of their health, paying attention to various symptoms that they have, trying to understand it. And so that's happening. And then also it has always been a problem. And we know up to 979 million people right now have diagnosable illness anxiety disorders. So it's it's a real problem that's been there. I think what's happened is until recently, um, when an actual diagnosis was named and included, it used to be understood as like, I don't know, either something silly, like, oh, those silly people who get worried about their health, or those neurotic people who, you know, like they just want to be sick, or, um, or they're malingering, you know, which is the fancy medical term for they just want attention from a doctor, they can't get it from their children or their husband or wife or their dog. And, um, you know, and so it's always been there. But I will say clinically, for me at my practice, and for many of my colleagues who specialize in anxiety disorders, we have seen an increase. And some of it has been just directed towards COVID. Uh, and some of it has just been COVID and everything else. And it's because people are just paying so much more attention to their health now and thinking about it. And if you look at the popular press, I mean, every single day, there are articles that have something to do with your health and COVID and new symptoms and long COVID and whatever. And I, I've never seen so much information. It just brings it to mind. Yeah. And it is scary. I mean, I think I just want to validate that. I think for most of us, if we watch the news and pay attention with COVID, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff out there. And then, you know, I mean, I it's, it's an interesting time, I think, in terms of health anxiety, because a little bit of anxiety probably makes some sense. It might encourage some smart behaviors, you know, especially during times when rates are high of COVID. And on the other hand, sometimes I think it's a fine line. It's like, where does it become more of a health anxiety kind of thing. And so what's your sense of the definition of like, where is it kind of just the typical anxiety we all might experience versus yeah, something but, a little bit more concerning? That is such a great question. And it's one where a lot of people get confused. And the area where I draw the line is um, when you're unable to enjoy all the normal activities in your life, when you're unable to let go of the worry about your health or to let go of reassurance seeking where you're trying to make sure I did the safe thing, I'm all right, uh, I'm checking with someone else, say, have you felt this too? Um, when you can't keep yourself from doing those things, then quite frankly, you have a problem. And what we see with the average person, um, for example, when the pandemic started is for the first couple of weeks, they were kind of worried. And, and one thing that's been very challenging about this pandemic is it has some conditions that are ripe for illness anxiety. And in particular, there's a ton of uncertainty and there's tons of competing information and competing beliefs about information, about what's accurate. And then as we learn, we change um, the ways that we treat. COVID or the ways that we prepare for it. So in the start of the pandemic, we were being told, don't touch anything, don't be near anything, 
Um, we were being showed movies of like sterile technique for the operating room on how to handle anything we brought into the house. And then we found that's pointless and it's all about masking. Then we had vaccines. Then we weren't sure. Then some vaccines maybe were better than others. And so it's um, when there's uncertainty, then we found that's the area where people who have an actual disorder get tripped up. And what they do is they take this better safe than sorry strategy and they figure I can't handle all the uncertainty. I'm just going to focus on the worst case scenario just to play it safe so I can be prepared. And then unfortunately what happens when you just think about the worst thing that could happen is your brain and your body are kind of stupid and they can't tell the difference between imagined fear and a real dangerous situation. And this is why we like to go to amusement parks and do those scary rides or watch scary movies or read scary books is we get a fear reaction that is real. Um, and if we know what it is, we think it's thrilling. If we don't know what it is, then our brain misinterprets that reaction and goes, oh, my goodness, this makes such sense for me to think about long COVID and being disabled or about how I'll be on a ventilator and my family will have to turn it off or you know, thinking terrible things like that. Uh, and then on top of that, with the pandemic, the other problem we had was we had huge changes in how healthcare del was delivered. And that created more uncertainty where we were being told on the one hand, don't go to the emergency room. On the other hand, if it's really, really bad, then go to the hospital right away. Um, and then we're being told, no, don't go to the hospital. It's dangerous to be in the hospital. <laughs> and, you know, and that was just more confusion where nothing felt familiar, nothing felt safe, um, nothing was reassuring about anything to do with healthcare. Uh, and so we know that that really promoted this idea that, of, or not idea, but people focusing on the worst case and getting stuck there and then trying to handle it by doing all the wrong things. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it is so confusing. And again, I think that it's, you know, we're all still continuing to navigate how much yeah. risk we take, what's worth the risk and that kind of thing. Um, and I, but I think one really key point that you made here that is, it's not just about COVID, it's just health anxiety in, in general is about, you know, where does it start to take over your life, right? Where does it keep you from doing other things you care about? Where do you just get really, really stuck there? Because maybe for some of us, this comes and goes, or we have it in certain yeah. situations. But I think when you really, the book that you have here is really for people where this is a problem, right? This is getting yes. to be severe enough that it's like taking over and making it hard yeah. to live. Right, right. Well, one of the things that's tough is that we know when people have illness, anxiety, that they have some beliefs that are a little bit unhelpful. And one of them is, it's the safe and responsible thing for me to do to worry about my health or about someone else's because you can have health anxiety about another person. So a mother might or a grandmother or a husband about a wife or a partner about a partner um, and that we they think it's responsible and loving that I'm doing this. And then also they view getting sick or dying or having a terrible illness as being unusually tragic. And so instead of viewing illness or death or dying as, you know, this is a normal part of life and it's unfortunate when it happens, they think of it as like this is the worst thing ever that could happen to me or someone else. And I'm not downplaying how horrible it is to have a serious illness or to a terminal illness. Um, what I am saying is it gets put out of proportion. And then what happens is that sometimes for people who have this, where it's out of proportion is even though they're miserable when they're trying to get reassurance, when they're looking on the internet and trying to make sure this rash or this pain or this lump or this bump, um, is it a cardinal sign of something? Is it, a, is it a bad sign? Does it mean something? You know, at the same time, they're feeling like, well, this is the right thing to do. And so one of the tells is when other people are complaining to you about your checking and your information seeking, which is just plain old reassurance seeking, um, or you're checking this other person. And so 
I'll give you a good example. I've had patients where they'll take their temperature in each ear. And like many people, it won't be exactly the same. Or they'll do their forehead and their ear and then their armpit and they don't all match up properly. And then they start getting worried about which one's the accurate one, which one's the right one. What does this mean that one side of my body is hotter than another? Or um, or they'll be um, feeling a lump or a bump so much that it actually gets sore and swollen. And then, of course, that looks more alarming. And then you don't know well, is it actually getting worse or was it me touching it too much? Um, and you get, it's like a, a fly stuck on fly paper. The more you struggle, the more you get stuck. And so that's mm-hmm. an experience people will recognize is realizing the more I think about this and try to solve it, the more it gets stuck and the more I have to do to try and get unstuck, the more I find myself talking to other people, trying to compare, have they had this? Do they know anyone? If they did, who did they go to? Um, researching uh, about it on the internet, um, constantly feeling or looking or saving pictures of the symptom. And, and one thing I need to emphasize is with this particular problem, it's about real symptoms. So it's never anything that you make up in your mind. And that's a common misunderstanding. It's about noticing a real symptom that you have. And then because it's ambiguous, your anxious mind wants to say, hmm, better safe than sorry. Let's assume that yellow light is a red light. What if it's cancer? What if it's a brain aneurysm? What if it's long COVID? Uh, What if it's multiple sclerosis or whatever it might be? Uh, and then the other thing that we see that happens with people is that they also um, have this sense of, even though I'm doing the right thing, I'm getting out of control. Mm. And I'm having to delay doing things that really matter to me, or I can't go to bed as early because I have to do more research, or I have to get up and wake up my kid again to check their fever or to check their lymph nodes, or to look at this mole that all of a sudden I thought, what if the edges were irregular? I wasn't sure I paid good attention to it. Um, And that you see that subtly this anxiety is carving away pieces of your good, healthy life. And that is a danger signal. When we see people who don't, who aren't prone to this, we find they're able to keep it from stopping other things. And so a good, I'll give you a good comparison example that this happens to me all the time where I have patients who have illness, anxiety disorder, and it comes time for one of those screening tests, like a colonoscopy or a mammography or a prostate exam. And my patients who don't have it, they're like, yeah, I got that exam. And you know what they're worrying about? They're worrying about either the prep for the exam or the discomfort of the exam or just the embarrassment of having the doctor have to look there or getting something squished, okay? The people with illness anxiety are already crying and upset about they know this time it's it. They were lucky up until now, and this time it's going to be the bad thing. And I've had patients literally say, I wish they would just call me now and have I, tell me I have cancer. I'd rather know for sure than be in this waiting zone. And it's another mm. way to say, I can't handle the uncertainty. I don't know yeah. how to handle the uncertainty of my life and these symptoms that are being assessed because we know, in all reality, no one wants that bad diagnosis, but they're saying, I find it easier to cope knowing what's going on than I do not knowing. And that would be a good example. Yeah, that's a great example, because I think most people find that a little stressful, you know, waiting for a result yeah. or having to go through such things. But when it just gets to that degree, and it just really makes you so anxious for so long. Yeah. And I'm glad you made the point. There, there's a couple points here about what it isn't, right? It's not people trying to do this on purpose to get attention right. or being kind of like a hypochondriac making stuff up. It's more just yeah. this fear. I also, are you, you're familiar, I'm sure, with the term orthorexia, which I think yes. is sort of yes. it's kind of related. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that's different? And they're, they're yeah. not totally but what's the what's the difference there well with with orthorexia that's where someone is trying to um, do perfect good health 
you know, so someone might be trying to eat exactly like the, um, it's not the food pyramid, that's that plate that's divided up, you know, making sure that Mm -hmm. all their macro and micronutrients are perfect, that their workout is perfectly proportioned in their body. And their fear is that it's more about perfectionism, about doing it right. And they may fear poor health as an outcome, but they usually are not um, stuck. They're not stuck on a particular disease. So it's not a disturbance of body image. It's um, we think of it more as like a, a version of OCD where someone obsessive compulsive disorder, where someone is compulsive and perfectionistic about, I have to um, live and eat and sleep and do everything perfectly according to the best health guidelines. And I want certainty that I've done it absolutely right. And so Mm -hmm. it's a correct, I call it a disorder of correctness, where with a health anxiety problem, the person actually has illnesses that they're fearing or death. Um, It feels intensely real. And they may engage in certain behaviors to try and protect their health. Um, But it isn't about being perfectly correct. It's more, um, I accidentally, I have someone I worked with where they ate some pizza and they really enjoyed it and they ate an extra piece and then they worried they were going to have a heart attack. Mm. And that, and, and as in right away, like I'm going to die now. What if I have a heart attack? And what if this has somehow made more plaque that then dislodges uh, and then I get a stroke or something like that? that would be more typical of illness anxiety. And so the person usually is focused more on trying to avoid these horrible thoughts about illness and death and dying, trying to get reassurance that everything is okay, as opposed to focusing on living with perfect uh, health behavior. Okay, that's such an interesting distinction. I Thing. And I can see how someone might have a little of both of those in some cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you could yeah. have both. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm glad you raised, you know, this kind of this idea a couple times has come up. And I just want to talk about it a little bit more about thoughts. And one is that catastrophic thinking that you hear. And I mean, we can all probably go there from time to time. You have a, you know, a funny symptom and you look it up online and then you think, oh no, you know, but but yeah. it can be pretty extreme, almost to the point of a little bit of magical thinking, I think. I mean, I don't know if that's mm-hmm. if that's the right word for it, but where it kind of almost feels like maybe if I worry, it's gonna, like my thoughts yes. are somehow gonna really matter here. Yes, yes. And, and and I think part of this comes from the fact that when you're thinking these horrible worst case scenarios, so you're imagining, oh my gosh, my child is going to um, die some terrible wasting disease, or um, I'm going to have this horrible neurologic condition is it feels so very real. And even though, and this is what's frustrating for many people who have this, is part of their mind will realize I'm out of proportion, you know, this is compared to other people, I am getting more upset. And I know that, but I can't help myself. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like a freight train going down a hill on, you know, grease tracks, you just can't stop it. And so um, one mistake that people think is like, oh, okay, if I just could be really rational and logical, then I could talk my way out of this. And and in fact, that's what many doctors try to do or friends is they say, your last, you know, 20 years of physicals have been great. What are you worrying about? Stop worrying. Or your friend says, oh, stop worrying. You know, the last 500 times you thought it was cancer, you know, you're fine. And this isn't about logic. It's about knowing how to respond to an intense fear signal that's accidental and knowing how to handle uncertainty Um, true existential uncertainty that we all face, which is none of us knows um, exactly how we'll die. None of us knows how long our children will live or our parents or our best friends or our spouse or a partner. And, um, and it's a dilemma, an uncertainty we all have to become comfortable with. Well, if you have this illness, anxiety disorder, it's like a great big wall that says, nope, you're not going to allowed to get used to that. 
you have to think about all the worst things because it's too horrible to just let go of that. You've got to have control. You've got to figure it out. And I think sometimes worry can give people a false sense of control almost. Yeah. Such a funny thing. Because it doesn't seem like it. It seems so unhelpful, but it's like you, it's like your mind's way of trying to solve this problem for you. It just doesn't really get you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's sort of this, um, I mean, I can think for myself when I get caught up in worry, you know, myself, because I tend towards GAD uh, and, and come from a long line of worriers where we're very proud of our worry. Thank you. You know, my dad is like, it's a father's job to worry. My granddad, well, it's a grandpa's job to worry. Um, And I can't imagine leaving my family or my grandparents without them saying, now drive safely. And that's reassurance seeking. And I'm like, I've never had a moving vehicle violation. And yet they need to say this to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, so I think what's, what's tough is worry really does travel in the disguise of you're being responsible, you're being loving and kind. And, and it's very common for me to have patients initially argue for their illness anxiety by saying, well, if I, if I don't call my doctor all the time, if I don't look, I could miss something serious. You're, you can't, really, you're asking me to do that, Karen? Um, that puts me at risk or that puts my child at risk. Or, you know, uh, I, I, here's one example. I had someone who had a... Um, a child that during infancy had to have a, uh, a breathing monitor and then they outgrew it and they no longer had risk for SIDS, that sudden infant death syndrome. But 11 years later, she's going in several times a night to watch this child's breathing and it's waking up the child and the child's actually angry about it. And it's like, leave me alone, mom. And this person felt like I was asking her basically to murder her child through inattention. And that tells you how strong this worry can get a grip because it it makes you feel like you're controlling things by being prepared for an outcome that actually has not happened. There's no higher likelihood what will happen, but because you're taking action, it feels better than doing nothing. Yes. And actually, I maybe let's use that as an example, because I wanted to talk to you more about this reassurance seeking. And there's so many different versions of that, right? Calling your doctor 50 times or going for multiple second, third, fourth, fifth yeah. opinions. But, but if you think about that example, the reassurance seeking was in the form of checking on the child to make sure the child's still breathing and still alive. So can you just, I, I don't know, I guess maybe break down that cycle of, you know, there's sure. the anxiety and then the, how does that work? Yeah. Well, the, I know if you have illness anxiety and you're listening to this, you're probably going, so what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, Sounds there's a, fine, a lot right? that's wrong with it. And for starters, we know that reassurance seeking is what we call a negative reinforcer. And that is a fancy name for something that allows you to escape distress quickly and then accidentally reinforces all the thoughts and feelings and behavior that happened before you escaped. And and in the case of someone checking their daughter's breathing, it reinforces the idea this is necessary to check. It reinforces the scary thought, what if they're dead if I don't check? It reinforces the, I should wake up right now and go check. It reinforces that when I go to sleep, I don't want to sleep too heavily because now I should check. And it actually makes it harder and harder and harder to think of a different kind of helpful thought that says, um, my daughter is now 12 and has never had other than that one incident. She does not need to be checked. And there isn't a doctor around who says I should check. Um, and I would like to have unbroken sleep. Thank you. Cause I might feel better and be less anxious overall just from that. And, uh, but this negative reinforcement is very, very powerful. And we know with all of the anxiety disorders, it is, one of the most important things that has to be addressed if you want to recover. We have to stop that cycle of negative reinforcement. Uh, And then um, another negative reinforcer is avoiding. And so um, listeners might recognize this. Someone talks about an illness you're afraid of and you're kind of like, 
oh, let's change the topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And you're like, no, 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 let's not talk about that. Or you're driving and you realize, oh, there's the cemetery. Oh, I'm not going to look at that. Or I'm not driving this way anymore because it makes me think of um, sad illnesses that I don't want. Um, or uh, what I see with a lot of people is not being able to go get regular medical care. So they check and they worry. They uh, do what I call performing medicine without a license um, and don't have an actual health care provider check in on them. And then they actually do put themselves at greater risk for, you know, bad things to happen with them health because they're not following standard care. Uh, and then um, I have people that where they can't listen to news because there's going to be the COVID report or what if there's one of these, um, you know, sad stories of Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know, here's our local news department, they're featuring this kid, or there's a fundraiser. I've had patients that can't go to fundraiser for certain things because it, it's about the illness they're afraid of. And then sadly, I've got quite a few people now who can't go back to work. And it's because they're so afraid of COVID, including some medical professionals who have severe illness anxiety. And, uh, or people that um, are afraid to even help their kids when they have a health problem because they're like, I can't take um, the thought of anything being wrong. It's too painful for me. They're throwing up. What if this is the beginning of the end? Uh, so it can really, that's a negative reinforcement that can really get in the way too. So we have to address that also. It's so interesting behaviorally because. These are two, we talk sometimes about form versus function and how these are opposite behaviors. You know, think of one person who gets five mammograms a year and one person who avoids it for 10 years because they don't want to know. And it's like on the surface, those are the opposite behaviors. But in both cases, the function is really to escape from that anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. It's to make it so you don't, you don't worry about the worst case scenario. You know, one person takes the out of sight, out of mind, and the other one takes the, um, I need someone to tell me it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And then the person tells you it's okay. And then do you believe them? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, and, and I'm sure people are listening will recognize this because the classic thing that happens, you go to that person who says the thing you want them to say and you walk out and then you're like, you know, what if they miss something? Yeah. What if I, I didn't explain it right to them? What if they didn't pay good enough attention to those test results? And the cycle starts up again, or many of you may have had that. I've had this where you get your labs back and they aren't fully in the positive zone, but they're not in the negative zone. They're in that in-between where it says, just watch and see. And the doctor says, oh, it's nothing. Well, that is precisely the kind of thing where people with illness anxiety will just be driven nuts by it because they want to know for sure, uh, and, and unfortunately now I've, I've learned you can order almost everything lab test you want to get off of Amazon and find someone who will do it remotely. And um, I've had people do repeat just about everything uh, that you could spit into, poop into, pee into, or give blood to, or, you know, bodily fluids to get things retested and never get the reassurance they're looking for because it's never the same both times. Well, and this is where I think, I think that health anxiety gets really tricky to work with. And actually it's, I talked to my co-hosts, Jill and Yael, and I said, oh, you know, I'm interviewing Karen about health anxiety, what questions you have. And they, all three of us kind of are saying, we find health anxiety a little tricky because of this, because first of all, you don't really know. And, you know, sometimes people, it's hard to diagnose, or maybe it's like, where it's it's such a gray area of when is it like a good idea to get a certain amount of you know checkups and testing done and and that kind of thing and sometimes people do get very sick as you mentioned um yeah. but yeah. when does it get to be too much and it's like how do you know so i don't know what your thoughts are about this but i guess what i'm trying to get at yeah, yeah. so where's the line between um well, i think well, i think some discomfort that therapists have Actually, and some um, healthcare professionals is they don't want to be caught 
in a potential lawsuit situation. So they they get worried about, since I know I can't promise anyone good health, then maybe I should play it safe and order a procedure. Um, so that's one phenomenon that can get difficult. And I think for those of us in mental health, where we, we know we're not medical health professionals, we're kind of like, well, I yeah, we can't know. say, right. Yeah. You say, oh, that's definitely nothing to worry about. It's like, how yeah. do I know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Where I had someone once send me pictures of their poop every day and I, you know, told them, look, you know, besides the fact that I'm not a gastroenterologist, I don't want to, um, you know, do negative reinforcement with you, but, uh, you know, but the way I handle this is to look at it and to say, okay, if we could take, um, a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner who does not have illness, anxiety disorder themselves about being afraid to miss a diagnosis. So they're, they're comfortable with risk. Then what would they do? What kind of tests would they order? How often would they see someone? And, and that's our guideline. And then we use general guidelines from the American medical association or um, world health organization that says, People of a certain age should have these screenings if they have no other risk factors. If you have a family history, you might need that. But we try to look at just those general public health guidelines and say, this is going to be your decision-making backbone because we don't want your anxiety making decisions about your health care. And then um, we also uh, realize that it doesn't matter how well we do healthcare. There's going to be random things that no one can catch and, and that none of us can be prepared for and that we want to learn, okay, worry won't prepare you. Um, if you get a serious diagnosis, no matter what it's sad, no matter what it choir requires adaptation and learning, but it doesn't mean your life is ruined. Um, it just means it's going to be different than you imagined. And so we try to talk about it differently and to set up with the person, okay, what would a non-anxious person do? What would the average person who's not anxious do and how would they accept the risk of not being able to perfectly do that? And so one thing I have in my home community uh, in Wisconsin is they have this giant semi-truck MRI that for... I forget how much money we'll do a whole body scan and they advertise it to all the anxious people. It says detect heart disease, detect cancer, detect, you know, whatever. I mean, it basically promises you, you know, we can tell you whether or not you're going to live the next year and they get a long line of people. And that would be the kind of thing where I'd say, absolutely not, because that's going to play into a false sense of control over fate that none of us has and that I would only, I would want to have a wise, trained person making decisions about my health rather than my anxious brain. Uh, and that one of the things that I want patients to know is when you're anxious, you're impulsive. Um, you are not looking at the whole picture. You're only looking at one tiny little part and a lot of it's imagined. And why would you want to make wise decisions about your body or your future or your people you love using that as your big decider. Um, yeah. And can we use other people's wisdom uh, for that? And, and then the other thing that's really important is to try and um, have the therapist talking with the mental health doctor. I mean, with the medical doctor. And the reason for that is most medical doctors have next to no training in mental health and they do not want to know what to do with an anxious person. Um, some do, or some themselves have experienced anxiety and they get it. And so they say things that don't help, like, don't worry, or just trust mm -hmm. me. And they don't realize this problem doesn't have anything to do with trust in the doctor. It's difficulty with uncertainty. And uh, and to have the the doctor or the nurse learn to talk in a different way, which says something like, it looks like you're getting really anxious and um, you might want to talk to your therapist about it or look at your book that Karen wrote. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> look at Karen's book, book. yes. Look at Great Karen's resource. book. And, uh, and I can tell you that right now um, I have no concerns about you. And I see that you want a promise from me and I can't give you a promise, but I can give you a clean bill of health. 
um, and to learn how to talk differently to the patient where they're, where they're accommodating to their anxiety and saying, I see you're anxious. And the, and I know the problem's not with me or you. It's just anxiety's making it hard for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. Much more validating and warm toward that and still, yeah. you know, helping them understand what's going on. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's a piece of this I just really want to highlight because it goes back to that part about uncertainty. And I know that helping people tolerate uncertainty is a big part, you know, if you move into, okay, so what do you do if you have health anxiety? And I think there's something about that fear that we have. We don't know what's in the future. We don't know how we're going to die. We don't know if we're going to get one of these, you know, random illnesses. And it almost feels like we're trying to protect ourselves from that uncertainty. We're yes, trying to protect yes. ourselves from a potentially bad outcome. And I think the point you made is that it's going to be hard if you get that outcome at some point, no matter what. Um, but how do you work with people around mm-hmm. tolerating anxiety? What are some of the things you do with your clients to help them with that piece? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a couple of different techniques. So one is to learn to tolerate the scary thoughts And the way we do that is with what we call worry exposure or imaginal exposure, where you deliberately think the scariest thoughts. And I know this always sounds crazy to people when I suggest this, because the whole disorder is based around how can I avoid those thoughts? I don't want them in my head. They're horrible. They give me nightmares. Get rid of them. Yes. Yes. But what we see is just like if you watched a very frightening movie over and over, you would get used to it. And then at some point you'd be like, "Eh, this is not so interesting. Or if we made you ride the worst roller coaster ride a hundred times in a row, it would get to where it wouldn't bother you. Repeatedly thinking about it until the thoughts aren't so sticky makes it easier. And what we see is we think people um, who don't have health, health anxiety do this naturally where every time you're at a funeral, or you hear a sad story and you don't run away, it's kind of like you're doing exposure to that idea of it it could happen to me or someone I love and you get used to it. Um, And so you can do this on your own with that practice. And I have people um, say it out loud or write it down. We find you process it better if you say it out loud or if you handwrite it versus typing it. Um, And you do it over and over. And for most people that takes 20 to 30 minutes the first time. And as you repeat it, it gets shorter and shorter. And the interesting thing is when people do this, I think initially they're tearful or they're very sad or they're shaking or they're crying. Um, But then usually they hit a note where they're like, I don't know why it just doesn't bother me. Or they laugh and they go like, this is so unrealistic. I don't know why I didn't see it. And it helps them look at it long enough to get perspective and realize Actually, this thought is just an imagined awful future. It's not the real thing. So that's Mm -hmm. one. Another thing that's important is to do perspective taking that helps you accept. So I ask patients questions like this. So let's say, for example, you knew you had absolutely just one year left to live. How much time would you want to spend worrying, crying about it? looking up the symptoms on the internet, comparing what your doctor said versus living your life. And I've never had anyone give me any answer or another, like, I wouldn't want to do that. This sucks. I, I want to live. And then I'd say, well, actually that's our problem every day is because none of us knows what happens tomorrow. Our goal is to be as present focused and as joy seeking focused and um, willing to dive into life as we can and to look at it as it's an adventure. And then another thing I do is to say, okay, I want you just to think about it. How many people get the choice of not dying or not getting sick? And the answer is none of us. None. I mean, if right. nothing else, the yeah. pandemic has proven 
it doesn't matter how much money you have. We are all equal when it comes to vulnerability to illness or dying. We, we may have privilege in terms of health care, but our bodies are our bodies. And, and to say, well, wait, if everyone has to get sick and has to die, then how tragic is that really? Is it a tragedy or is more it's just a sad fact of human suffering and it's just part of what it means to be human? And that um, this is the realm we live in is that sometimes we suffer um, physically or mentally and it's our job to learn how to overcome it rather than to dread it. Um, And so we try to shift the language around that. And then the other thing that I try to do is to say, okay, Um, the way you're thinking right now is saying, you know, why me or why my children, why the people I love, you know, wouldn't that be awful? And I'd say, let's reverse it. Why not you? Why not anyone? Is there anyone among us that gets a special free pass card from death or serious illness? And then if we look around, all of us know people um, who are the full range of good and bad and in between that have random tragic things happen and it's not based on morality or, you know, I have some people that quote that Billy Joel song, only the good die young, you know, and it makes them feel things are more tragic. And I'm like, Oh, I wish he hadn't read, you know, done that chorus because it's so misunderstood. I think, I think it was a Vietnam protest song actually, (laughs) but to say, no, 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 no. Um, some people do die young, and that's a fact of life. And and to try and dare to think about those things that our culture doesn't talk about very much, but it is a real part of our life, and to come up with a different way to think about it that is more realistic and practical and doesn't skirt the issue of, um, of course, I'm going to die someday. Of course, everyone I love will die. Of course, we'll all die. And we don't know when, and we all hope for a rich, long life. But in the meantime, the only way to really live is to make now good. Yeah, you know, we've had some episodes on the podcast before where we talked about this from more of an existential angle. And it's a really important shift because if if you make contact with that, concept of life is finite, you know, it, it really kind of reminds you to live now. And so actually it's, I think when you're avoiding it, sometimes you miss out on that, just that kind of tapping into that existential piece. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I don't know if everyone has, but every time I go to a funeral, it just makes me recommit to my life and to everyone I love to be more present, to be more focused on what really matters um, as opposed opposed to feeling more tragic. And I think that's probably the best response we can have. And then um, I talked about this in my book, but I had this unique opportunity to work with a terminally ill group of veterans um, in Mississippi during my, uh, you know, graduate training. And I, I was scared to death because I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm this 20-something, and what do I know about death and dying? And I was trying to, you know, go in and do all this therapy. And what they told me right at the start is, um, we want none of that. We're so sick of people feeling sad and sorry for us. We are alive right now, and quite frankly, we want to have fun. So could we make this the fun planning group? And basically... It, it ended up being this social group. And I can remember the first time I was there, someone's brother snuck in a bunch of watermelons fresh out of the field that were so ripe. They were the perfection of watermelon. I've never had a watermelon as good. Mm-hmm. And we ate watermelon. We talked about what a gift it was to eat watermelons and to have someone have a brother who farmed watermelons. And, uh, and, and it really challenged my thinking about what was helpful or important. And this was way before there was um, acceptance and commitment therapy or anybody talking about present moment focus, but it made a strong point to me that, you know, this is not a tragic situation. These are noble people doing the best they can in a hard situation. And I'm just being silly thinking I can help them uh, with anything other than just living now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It kind of cuts to the chase, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, I want to 
piggyback just I have a couple more things I want to kind of check in with you about before we wrap up here that kind of again go back to this idea of some exposure work um you know we talk about exposure and response prevention and I think you know what are we really trying to expose people to here like you said it's the stuff we're avoiding because it makes us anxious yeah and one of the ways that we you know, we can work with health anxiety, you write a lot about this in your book is around stopping those behaviors like reassurance seeking, and maybe also exposure to the anxiety itself. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about how you work with that? Yeah, yeah. Because when you're doing exposure, you're trying to expose yourself to the things that are hard to handle. So it's going to be uncertainty. So not getting reassurance, it's going to be to symptoms without doing anything other than just allowing them or to being in situations where it triggers you and makes you alarmed without doing anything to escape it or get reassurance. So one type of exposure we love for people to do is what we call interoceptive exposure or creating the physical symptoms they're scared of. So getting really hot if you're afraid of a fever Um, So having someone wear several pairs of sweats and drinking hot beverages and running up and down the stairs and drinking caffeine. Um, If you're afraid of heartbeats, you know, drinking those disgusting monster drinks or, you know, Red Red Bull or stuff like that Mm -hmm. or get your heart Starbucks. Yeah, I want five shots. Just in my call. Um, (laughs) Yes, where you'll feel really unpleasant. um, Or, uh, you know, uh, I had one person where we we drew little red dots because they were so afraid of rashes. So you couldn't tell was it a real rash or a fake rash. Um, But doing things where you're allowing yourself to have these symptoms and you're noticing them on purpose, but you're not doing anything to get rid of it or understand it. Um, another thing would be to have people tell you they're worried about your health because what happens to everyone? They're trying to get everybody to say, oh, I'm not worried. It's great. You're okay. And so Mm -hmm. to have people look at them and go like, you know, Debbie, you seem a little pale. Um, you know, could you be anemic or leukemia or, you know, Hey, you don't look so good. You look like my friend who, you know, died last year. Um, or you don't seem to have the same energy you had. So that would be something or having them do physical exertion, because what a lot of people do is if they feel sick, then they will immediately stay in bed, stay at home and avoid regular activities saying, no, I want you to go out when you have a cold. I want you, if you have a low grade fever and it's not a real fever, you go to work, you go to school. Um, you do stuff and you discover you can handle having this non-specific symptom that's not yet in the you need to do something about it zone and you can do it without having horrible panic or having to give into it. Um, so that's one type of exposure. And then another one is to actually listen to and read tragic news stories about real people and their real death and their real disability so that you could be come that average person who can listen to a cocktail party conversation where it goes in that direction and you don't have to like run out of the room or then do a lot of checking when you get home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have people deliberately seeking the scary information. Um, Or if you're afraid to go to the doctor, you make your appointment and you go or you get your test or you actually open the email with the test results um, I've had people not do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Just and, avoid, um, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, just avoid. Uh, and so we, it would be all kind of anything that your anxiety makes you feel like this is too hard to do. You come up with ways to do it. And it's very powerful. Yeah. And the, the biggest effect here is not so much on getting used to it. It's learning. I can do it. Yeah. I change my belief and I realize, wow, I've got the courage and I've got the ability to make it through this without doing all this other stuff that's equals negative reinforcement. Right. Yes. And your book, I have to say, I'll just do one more plug for it. Your book has so many examples. I'm going to definitely use it in my clinical practice when I encounter this, it's giving me some tools. And I'm just thinking if you experience health anxiety yourself, or if you 
no one loves someone who does. I think just depending on the flavor of your particular health anxiety, there's a lot of ideas for things you can do to kind of move the needle on this and hopefully reduce suffering and, you know, get your life back. Maybe if your life is really invested in this, it will help free you up. Yes. I mean, that, that's my real hope is because a lot of people with health anxiety feel very ashamed. They know other people think that they're neurotic or that they're, or they're afraid they won't believe them, or they might've even been um, treated harshly by a medical professional. Uh, and, and so they, they feel kind of embarrassed about it. And I want you to know there's so much you can do and you don't have to stay stuck there. You can make it a lot better or get over it completely. So that's what I hope you get from this. And remember, you're not alone because you said it was 900 million people in the world have this. Yeah. 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 Yeah, That's an unreal number. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I couldn't remember. Just a lot. A lot of people have it. Sometimes that alone is good to know. It's like you're not alone with Yeah. So reach out, read the book. Karen, um, where can people learn more? So your book is Freedom from Health Anxiety. Are you online or where can people find you if they want to learn? um, This book is at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, newharbinger.com and almost any bookseller um, will carry it. uh, You know, they carry new Harbinger books. So it's very easy to get to. Um, If you go to my website at anxietytreatmentcenter.com, you can click on a link that will take you to Amazon and help you buy that or my other book. Um, So it's, it's easy to get. So thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation, Karen. And thank you again for coming on, on the podcast. Thank you, Debbie. Bye-bye. If you love to nerd out about books that offer wisdom on living well, join our psychologist off the clock book club. We meet the second Thursday of each month at noon Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. In addition to the monthly book club meetings, you'll get a newsletter with tips, have the chance to meet some of our authors in person, and you get to vote on upcoming books that we'll discuss. To join, all you need to do is email us at offtheclockpsych at gmail.com with book club in the subject line, or you can link to us through the offers and events page at offtheclockpsych.com. We hope you join us for some book love and fun. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.